0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best in life are free. But you can give them to the and be
1: the from Fool Global headquarters. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analyst Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey How are you doing Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We got something special planned because it is our 12th anniversary, if you can believe it.
0: Woo-hoo. And as
1: always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar, but we begin with big retail. Walmart's fourth quarter was full of highlights. E-commerce sales up nearly 70%. Same-store sales in the U.S. up more than 8%. But despite that, Ron, shares of Walmart fell 6.5% on Thursday. That Seems like a big drop for a business like Walmart. Yeah, you know,
2: earnings disappointed, as did guidance. And the report was perfectly fine, but this is not a high flying tech company. So we can't expect those kind of numbers out of it, especially once we get back to normal post COVID. But the numbers were great Walmart comp sales up almost 9%, e commerce 69%, Sam's Club. Um, I'm a Costco guy, but hey, Sam's Club does a nice job as well. Uh, sales increased to almost 11% there, and international was up five. So you, you kind of boil that all together, and you get revenue up 7%, which is a perfectly respectable number for for a, a business, a retail business, the size of Walmart. And you even saw gross margins increase, as there was strength really across all categories. Now we had some higher expenses; operating margins took a hit that we see consistently across the board, partly as a result of COVID. In this case, it was $1.1 billion of COVID-related expenses. And they had another one-time um, expense where they decided to repay some property tax relief in the U.K., which we don't need to get into. Um, so, operating income, it all boils down to being up 5.5%, perfectly respectable, but investors were focused on the guidance, where the company came out and said, sales, operating income, and earnings are expected to decline in fiscal 22. Primarily due to the impact of anticipated divestitures. Now they're they're exiting Argentina, UK, Japan. They're doing that willfully on purpose um, to focus the business. Um, if you take away the, the impact of the divestitures. EPS is expected to be flat to slightly up. That also is not exciting to investors. So, you know, you get the stock selling off a bit. Love what they're doing with wages. They're going to raise, raise the average wage to above $15 per hour. Uh, they're still investing $14 billion in the supply chain and, and additional
1: technology. And finally, they increase their dividend for the 48th consecutive year. Impressive stuff. Shares of the Trade Desk up five percent this week after the programmatic ad platform wrapped up a strong fiscal year. Ad spending on the Trade Desk in the fourth quarter—do I have this right, Jason? It was up sixty percent in the fourth quarter.
0: Yeah, approximately for the quarter. Yes, it was. Uh, I remember, we talked about how the strong companies coming out of the other side of this mess—they're they're going to come out of this even stronger. I present to you Exhibit A: the Trade Desk. And a lot of this, I think, has to do. With uh, connected TV, it's those internet and television worlds colliding. Uh, Trade Desk is, is turning out to be a prime benefactor and and a um, uh, beneficiary rather. And and so I think uh, you, know, you see shares up 200% over the last year. Um, connected TV was the largest growth segment of the global advertising market last year. And to try to put all of that in into context, here you're, you're talking about ad spend on their platform. Ad spend on the on the platform for the year for 2020 was 4.2 billion dollars. That was up 34 percent from a year ago. Spend in in the fourth quarter alone, uh, yeah, one 1.6 billion versus one billion a year ago. Now, according to eMarketer, total global ad spending declined. Four and a half percent in 2020. So you put all that together and you can see. I mean, the trade desk is gaining share at a nice rapid clip. And it sounds like what they're doing is really working. Customer retention remains high at 95 percent. Uh, I mean, revenue has grown at a 50 percent compounded annual growth rate over the last five years. So, I mean, we're at this point now where more U.S. households are without a cable subscription than those that have one. That trend's not going to change. And then, finally, I think it's just it's worth noting on the call, uh, they, they talked about a reference to the CES, and Mark Pritchard, who's the Chief Brand Officer of Procter & Gamble, he was talking about this move towards digital, programmatic, data-driven, uh, automatic advertising. I mean, that's not going away. That's where that's where the, this ball is rolling, so to speak. And, and uh, when you hear that from the chief brand officer of Procter & Gamble, I mean, that's the world's largest advertiser. You can, you can see, there is, is a lot of reason to believe that the future looks very bright for the trade desk. Roku turned a profit in the fourth
1: quarter. They added more subscribers. Shares of Roku flat this week, Ron, but given that it's up more than 250% over the past year, I really don't want to hear any complaining from shareholders. <laughs> You'll hear from me
2: because this is another high-flyer that I
1: completely missed out on,
2: but they are doing impressive work here. In twenty twenty. 38% of all smart TVs sold in the U.S. were Roku TV models. Um, that's some nice share that they're accumulating, and it's showing up in the numbers. They surpassed 50 million active accounts in Q4. Video advertising impressions more than doubled, and that translated into just great income statement numbers. Total revenue up 58%, broken down by platform revenue of an 81% increase and player revenue of 18 Gross margins widened significantly. Gross profit was up 63%. Streaming hours increased 20 billion hours to a record almost 59 billion, and ARPU, which we love to talk about, average revenue per user increased 24% now to $28.76 per user. Uh, so The numbers are really impressive. Uh, investors were not expecting a profitable quarter, so it took them by surprise in a good way. Um, they reported $65 million in operating profit versus a loss in last year's fourth quarter, EBITDA of $113 million. Um, respectable and growing. Guidance was not impressive when you look at it sequentially from quarter to quarter, but year-over-year, year, it's going to be a, an increase of around 50% in revenue, so that growth continues. and Management does expect a small loss of around $20 million for the coming quarter. Uh, let's see if maybe they surprise uh, again and turn a, a small profit.
1: Roku is also looking like a company that is going to get even deeper into original programming. Uh, we had talked previously about them. Um, paying pennies on the dollar for Quibi's library of content. Um, <laughs> As they should. Is, is that a good move for Roku to invest heavily in original content? Because uh, that, that puts them right up against the, the Netflix and Amazon Primes of the world. It worries me, but everything worries me, Chris. Um, It's expensive (laughs) to
2: get in programming. I mean, you know, my job as an analyst is to worry about these things and making sure that they are spending appropriately. They've got a good balance sheet, um, but gosh, as you said, the competition in original programming is steep and there's so much good stuff out there right now.
1: I don't love the idea. Shares of Fastly down 20% this week. Fourth quarter revenue for the Edge Cloud Platform grew 40%, but guidance for the current quarter sent some investors heading for the exits. How bad was the guidance, Jason?
0: Um, well, I mean, let's let's try to keep everything in context. I mean, guidance for 34% revenue growth in the current quarter. I mean, that's not all that bad. But when you compare it to the way this company's been growing, uh, then you start to understand some of the concerns and we 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 talk about it often when a company has a history of growing at really impressive rates, the stock Price reflects that. And when that growth starts to slow, then you see a repricing. And, and, and I feel like that is what we're seeing here to a degree with Fastly. And it's it's not to say that Fastly can't be a good investment from here, but but we have some questions, and, and I think that on on the the forty percent number that you that you uh, lobbed up there, it's it's worth noting too, organic growth. I think is starting to become the bigger question because that forty percent also included an acquisition that the company made. Uh, so organic revenue growth was really closer to around thirty percent, and and then you couple that with that guidance, you start to ask some questions. Uh, it, it it was interesting in the call. It was it really took. A, a, a lot of work to get that actual organic number as well. Like management wasn't really, I, I would say, as as upfront with it as they probably could have been. Uh, again, kind of makes you wonder about the growth prospects going forward. But gross margin. Expanded better than six percentage points for the for the quarter. I think that is that's the benefit of their usage based model. You see some puts and takes with that model, and, and that clearly is a benefit there. Dollar based net expansion rate was was 143 percent. That was down from 140 percent, 147 percent a quarter ago. Um, I, I think the a big concern with Fastly though is their ability to add enterprise customers, big customers that spend at least one hundred thousand dollars per year. And if you look at that, sequentially, Fastly saw 3.5% growth in those enterprise customers. They saw 12.5% growth from a year ago. Now, compare that to something like a Cloudflare. Cloudflare saw sequential growth of 8% and 50% growth from a year ago. And so, again, it's not to say Fastly can't be a good investment from here, but it does seem like there might be some better options in the space. Uh, given the guidance there, it feels like, it feels like the selling is at least understandable.
1: Coming up, Warren Buffett and his colleagues went shopping. We'll talk about what they bought and try to figure out why. Stay right here, you're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Marriott posted mixed results in the fourth quarter, but that news was overshadowed this week by the sudden death of Marriott CEO, Arne Sorensen, on Monday. For nearly a decade, Sorensen guided Marriott into becoming the largest hotel chain in the world. The board of directors expects to name a new CEO before the end of the month. But Jason, safe to say, um, big
0: shoes to fill. Big shoes to fill, yeah, absolutely. And and the earnings call was a real tribute to, to him. They they told stories. They they held him in the highest regard. I mean, it it really was. It, it was very thoughtful and, and clearly a very big loss uh, for 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 the company and and, and the general business world. Really, um, I I know the conversation is all about Airbnb and and the the gig economy and sharing economy. And what other way the travel space is changing? And that makes sense to agree. I actually think that Marriott is a business that can handle this shift in the travel industry pretty well I think that it has it still has a big role to play and a lot of that I think is is thanks to thanks to what mr Sorensen did to this for, for this business over the past uh, basically decade I mean since March 31st in 2012 when when he took over I mean the stock is up 283 percent versus the markets 180 percent. He's more than doubled the top line over his tenure going into this this 2020, uh, which was obviously a very difficult year for everyone. Um, if you look at the quarterly results, I mean it was bad, but we expected it to be bad. Rev par that revenue per available room declined sixty four point one percent worldwide. Adjusted earnings of twelve cents that compared to a dollar fifty one 51, uh, from a year ago. Uh, but there are some notes of encouragement on the call. There are really Reasons to believe, at least, that demand will come back rather quickly. They noted some key markets in China. Where demand jumped from around 20% to over 60% in just two weeks after local governments uh, had, had removed travel restrictions. Um, and, and then it's also very encouraging to see what the, the traction that they're getting and the engagement that they're getting from their Marriott Bonvoy program. That's loyalty, card, app, benefits. All this thing rolled into one. They have 147 million members now. They noted that global credit card spending on their Marriott-branded cards was only down 16%. You compare that to that RevPar decline, uh, clearly, you can see people are Still using that card, um, and I think that that's going to be important. I think that's something this this company can really benefit from is is generating that engagement, their own little world from from that uh, Bonvoy program. I mean, eMarketer pegs at ninety percent of our growing mobile time is spent in apps. So I mean, if you are a consumer-facing brand, regardless of market, I, I mean, you got to bring a strong app game to the table, and they're really working on that. It seems like it's paying off. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I see a world where Marriott still has uh, has a role to play, and uh, we'll we'll be interested to see who who does fill Mister Sorens, uh, Sorenson's shoes. Shares of Shopify down a bit
1: this week, despite the fact that fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. And Ron, I get the valuation on Shopify, but it seems like. The business is doing so many things that you would want to see if you were a shareholder. You get the valuation. You'll explain it to me after the show.
2: (laughs) Uh, These are really strong results, but I just think investors were less impressed with the guidance. and, And when you're trading the way you do, you need to really fire on all cylinders, as I like to say. But for the quarter, very impressive. Revenue up 94%, adjusted net income up almost 200%. Subscription Solutions up 53%. Now, that monthly recurring revenue, the MER, was $83 million. That's up 53%, um, which is which is a strong number. And the, the, the big number here, really, out of all of these great numbers are the Merchant Solutions revenue, which is their bread and butter, and that was up 117%. So, you know, it, certainly benefiting from the fact that everything moved online um, during the COVID pandemic and, and the quarantine. Um, but the numbers are really impressive. Uh, operating margins widened. They had adjusted net income of around $200 million. That compares with only about $50 million this time last year. So, we're not extremely profitable here, right? We've, we've got this high-flying, unbelievable stock up 160% over the last year and, and even more before that, but we're still kind of in the infancy of profitability. Um, that's where people looked at the guidance, and I think investors really were worried here. Management said they expect to grow revenue rapidly in twenty. 2021, but at a lower rate than in 2020 as the economy opens up and people return to brick and mortar stores. So, if you own a high-flying growth stock, you do not want to hear anything about lower growth rates. Uh, and they're also going to uh, continue to invest aggressively to fuel growth, which you want them to theoretically, but there, there's a, obviously a
1: cost uh, to spending all that money. Fourth quarter profits for CVS Health came in higher than expected, but shares still down a bit this week. Jason, if you're looking for signs of encouragement at CVS, pharmacy sales are up. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean there's 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 a little bit of a little bit of stuff to look forward to here with this business. I mean it it's not been the greatest investment over the past several years, but I I do wonder if we won't see some goodwill and brand equity come from from everything that that we've witnessed with the pandemic is CVS is I think now being seen as a part of the overall solution uh, they are one of the national partners for the Federal Pharmacy Partnership Program, which is the, it's central to the plan to vaccinate 300 million Americans by the end of the summer. Um, as far as the numbers, revenue growth, 4% to just under $70 billion. Uh, and not bad. I mean, given given everything that, that's going on, adjusted earnings per share of a dollar thirty. Operating income uh, was down over twenty percent. A lot of that was due to pandemic related expenses, reimbursement pressure, um, in, in general, just business environment concerns there. But but pharmacy services, which is about fifty five percent of overall revenue, that was down slightly for the quarter, offset a little bit by uh, some growth in retail, six point six percent. That was driven mostly by prescription volume and COVID testing. The healthcare benefits segment grew close to 10%, that's encouraging. Uh, and and they're guiding, I think, for some fairly reasonable targets here, uh, guiding for earnings you know, around $7.45 per share so far, a top-line growth around 4% or so. Uh, so, I, I think, you know, it, all things considered, this is a company that is, is is still doing good things, but but they definitely have some challenges as the economy starts opening back up. Berkshire
1: Hathaway's latest earnings report comes out next week, but this week we found out what Warren Buffett and his team have been buying. Berkshire has taken a $4 billion stake in Chevron, an $8.5 billion stake in Verizon. Ron, (laughs) is one of those better than the other? Because both seem a little uninspiring. I know. um,
2: Yeah. Chevron is clearly energy is, is an economic rebound play, um, and we've seen other investors. I think uh, David Tepper over at Appaloosa um, has recently entered the energy space as well. Um, I don't know if Chevron's the the best way to play that. I think I think there are better uh, companies out there to maybe play it, but they they obviously see something uh, impressive in that company. Verizon, I would assume, is a five G play. Um, interestingly, I myself did the same thing maybe a year or more ago, but in hindsight, I actually. Think there are better ways to play 5G than the service providers. Um, Jason would certainly know more than that than I do. Uh, But these are interesting moves. They lowered their stake in Apple uh, by six percent, and and Verizon's now three percent of the portfolio. So that's that's a big bet they're making.
1: Yeah, it just it's it seems like they're bored. (laughs) Like I I know there's serious people doing serious things, but these seem like, as I said, uninspired purchases. But we'll see what we get out of their next quarterly report. All right. Which big tech CEO will step down next? How close are we really getting to self driving cars? We're going to answer those questions and more with a round of buy, sell, or hold. That's next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. When I'm out walking, I my stuff
2: and I'm so strung out.
1: Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. As I said at the top of the show, guys, it is our 12th anniversary. Hard to believe, 12 years ago this week, Motley Fool Money started as a humble little podcast. (laughs) 11 months later, we make the leap to broadcast radio, the first podcast to do so. We don't get anything for that. We don't get a plaque or a bag of money, but you know we get the honor of being first. <laughs> um, and something that we used to do more often on the show, but haven't done for a while, is buy, sell, or hold. And for those unfamiliar, I'm going to spot Jason and Ron up with a, a topic, and have them weigh in as though if this thing were a stock, would they buy, sell, or hold it? And uh, Jason, I'll go to you first on this one because there's more and more talk every year about autonomous driving. So Buy, sell, or hold the likelihood that a child born this year will need a driver's license in, let's call it, 2040.
0: I'm going to say the likelihood that they'll need a license, I'm going to say buy. I think that while we are making terrific progress in regard to transportation as a service, there are going to be all sorts of leaps and bounds here in the next several years. I still think that's probably a little bit early to look at self-driving for the masses. I think we'll see pockets where it's available, but I think generally speaking, I think that kids born today, most of them will still need a driver's license by the time they're of age. What about you, Ron? In much the same way as
2: a pilot needs to know how to fly when he flips off the autopilot switch, thank God. (laughs) I think people will also need to know how to drive in case they need to switch off their uh, autopilot on the autonomous vehicle. So while we might not use it very often and those skills may not uh, be necessary and may atrophy over time, I still think it will be a law that we will have to be versed in how to drive a car.
1: Ron, lawmakers continue to speak out about the monopoly of big tech, so buy, sell or hold Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, or Facebook getting broken up in the next five years. And I'll just add on to that, (laughs) you can even go the route of a self-breakup in the next five years. Well, the heat is certainly on, and so I'm going to buy that one of them
2: does get broken up either by the Department of Justice, or on its own, and if I had to guess, I would say it was Alphabet because it feels Google feels to me more like the the, the biggest monopoly of them. Um, they all have competition, um, but um, Google Search is 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 pretty up there in terms of market share. And if if anyone really has to go down, that would be my guess.
0: Jason. Well, I think I'm going to run counter to run here, and I'm going to sell the notion that we will see any of these companies broken up in the next five years. I think that perhaps some lawmakers would like to do that. Um, I, I also think that there are bigger fish to fry, and I think that they probably are better served looking at what has happened with these four businesses in Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and Facebook in in trying to ascertain exactly how they could prevent uh, potential antitrust concerns in the future. I mean, there's some acquisitions you could argue that should not have been made. I mean, Facebook. I'm looking in your direction. It seems like the Instagram deal was really not about trying to make yourself stronger as much as it was trying to about uh, as much as it was about lim- eliminating a competitor. Um, and, and so I think they probably look back on stuff like that and say, you know what, we, <laughs> we probably should have caught that. Um, I, I don't know that they're really going to have the political capital to, to fully make something like a breakup happen here. Uh, it could happen I'm, ju- I'm just selling the notion that it will uh, i think it definitely will reshape how tech uh, is able to consolidate though in the future
1: let's stick with big tech because jeff bezos recently announced he is stepping down later this year as ceo of amazon so buy seller hold ron buy seller hold tim cook being the next big tech ceo to step down not necessarily this year just of that group apple alphabet microsoft facebook Tim Cook is the next one to step down. I'm going to sell that
2: notion. Now, yes, he is the oldest at 60 years old, but he's by no means old. And I still think he's energized by what he's doing and he's got a lot to do. I'm going to call an audible and tell you that it's Mark Zuckerberg uh, at 38 years or 36 years old um, that is going to move on to executive chairman and do other things, uh, either in the space or in the world of charity. And he will be the, the next one.
1: I like it. Bold call. What do you think, Jason?
0: It is bold. And I, I mean, man, Ron, you must have been cheating off of my notes or something. <laughs> I was going in that same exact direction. I mean, I, I really I really don't think Tim Cook has any inclination to step down. I think that he's been a wonderful operator for Apple, and, and he really is, Is I think, enjoying the role that he's serving. It, it, to me, it really does feel like, even, even though Mark Zuckerberg is still so young, it really does feel like, after given what given what we've seen with Jeff Bezos, right? I, I feel like that probably maybe plants a seed in, in in Mark's head, and he thinks, you know what? I don't have to do this forever, and I can still be involved with the business and, and play an integral role in, in its development and growth without necessarily maintaining the CEO roles. I absolutely could see. Zuckerberg transitioning over to executive director at some point or another. Um, And, and, you know, hey, perhaps letting an operator like Sheryl Sandberg go in there and take care of that day to day. um, Be interesting to see. Yeah, wasn't Bill Gates
1: in his late 30s or maybe like early 40s when he stepped down as CEO of Microsoft?
0: Pretty young, yeah. It feels, yeah, it sounds right.
1: The newest entry into the streaming wars launches on March 4th, $6 a month. If you want to get it with ads, $10 a month if you want to get it ad free. Jason, buy, sell, or hold
0: Paramount Plus. Well, Chris, going into. Peacock. I think we were all having a little bit a little bit of fun at Peacock's expense, right? Part of that probably was the name, part of it was thinking you're a little bit late to the game. All of that uh, is true. All of that. <laughs> so, I in 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 hindsight, I mean, I've been very impressed to see what they've done with Peacock in such a short period of time. They've gotten some good content on that platform. You would think that Paramount Plus could do the same thing. It did seem like from the commercials they were airing during the Super Bowl that that they do have some content out there that folks want. Uh, I just don't feel like it's a buy, though. I feel like maybe they're a little bit late to the game, and for me, it's just getting to be such a cluttered streaming environment already. It, it it kind of feels like Paramount Plus might be uh, back of mind for a lot.
2: What do you think, Ron? I think you come for Star Trek Picard, but you stay for SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> what about but I'm and not staying, But I'm not <laughs> staying for either. It's a sell for me. And that's because I have a five to ten dollar fatigue on my credit card. If I have one more five to ten dollar charge that shows up on a monthly basis, it's gonna it's gonna be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So they do have some good programming um, for sure. Listen, we just can't do everything. There either has to be consolidation or maybe cheaper, or I I just can't put another one of these. I just can't commit. Just can't
1: do it. But before we get into the consolidation, because I do want to talk about that, but doesn't it work to the benefit of these streaming services that they are not all, the bill is not arriving at the same time? It's not like. For years and years, with your cable bill, which came once a month, it was a big number. You would look at all the charges and think, "What am I paying for all this stuff?" That, <laughs> that was uh, that was easier to look at. Instead, it's like you know, your your bill for Netflix probably comes at a different time than your bill for Disney Plus, for Peacock, whatever. So I, I I feel like it's in their best interest to at least make an attempt to go it alone as a standalone streaming service.
2: You, you may be right and, and to, truth be told I don't even remember exactly which ones of these things I subscribe to some <laughs> some like some are my kids like and some I like and I don't know how much money I'm spending in the aggregate so if, if you don't know you you tend to its it's kind of sticky you tend to not do anything about it versus like you said the cable bill comes and it's a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is every month and you're constantly calling them to see if you can lower that and they're like no you can and they're like okay thanks I'll call you next month
0: <laughs> well i mean and you're 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 absolutely right i think one of the things though further down the road then you do have to ask yourself that question regarding pricing power right i mean i think when we have that that discussion with disney plus for example and we say wow i mean setting that service at I mean, what did they start it at? Four ninety nine or something like that? Something absurd, where all of a sudden you see, okay, that's that's a brand, that's a platform, where that's a service where I could see over time, I understand the levers they can pull to raise those prices. You look at something like a Paramount Plus, and I mean, I'll I'll lump Peacock in there too. I think a lot of these streaming services are going to be faced with this challenge. Is how do you raise prices in 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 the coming years? Because that's going to be a battle that they're all going to be fighting on some front, and um, it's it's going to be easier for some, like a Netflix or maybe an HBO Max or something like that. It's going to be easier for some, I think, than others, and uh, that that'll be really uh, that'll be really an interesting one to watch play out.
1: I mean, we talked earlier in the show about Roku uh, acquiring some of Quibi's content. I mean, there's. You know, we're all familiar with the big name streaming services. There are so many more niche streaming services out there. Uh, It it seems um, hard to believe they can all survive. Do you think at some point in the next couple of years, we're going to hear announcements of some of the bigger ones, whether it's Netflix or Disney or even Amazon, um, instead of saying, here's how much money we're spending on content maybe one of them comes out and says, um, here's how much we're going to spend on acquiring these three niche content streaming services and incorporate all of their content into our system.
2: I like that idea of some of the the nichier ones um, combining. I don't know if the big boys will, they'll probably stay Uh, go it alone and compete. But some of the smaller ones, uh, Discovery Plus or or what have you, um, I could see them combining forces, combining balance sheets and uh, producing content as one bigger company.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you look at the opportunity out there in Connected TV, and let's go back to the Trade Desk uh, story that we were talking about earlier in the show. I mean, they they quoted some really impressive numbers on their call there. In 2020, more than 1,000 brands spent at least $100,000 on connected TV on the Trade Desk's platforms. Those brands that spent more than $1 million on the platform in 2020 more than doubled from a year ago. And so, it all goes back to this connected TV opportunity is a huge one. It's one where a lot of money is flowing. So, I absolutely understand why these streaming services are opening up the way they are. If we look back to something like uh, Peacock. And I imagine Paramount Plus is very much the same here. That's not, that's not a paid subscriber play, it's an ad play, right? That's how they generate most of their money is from advertising. And so I think when you look at those services, whether it's Discovery Plus, Paramount Plus, Peacock, whatever, uh, advertising is the big opportunity, at least for now. And those numbers that we saw on the trade desk's most recent quarter here that they just reported really bear that out. Up next, we will dip into the full mailbag
1: and share a couple of stocks on our radar. Don't hit fast forward and don't touch that dial. If you're an investor, you are right where you want to be. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ryan Gross. Before we dip into the Fool mailbag, guys, back on our 2021 preview show, The show ended with a round of reckless predictions. And uh, I want to go to our man behind the glass, producer extraordinaire Dan Boyd. Dan, can you play the reckless prediction that Ron Gross went with weeks and weeks ago? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, under the leadership of Tom Brady, will win Super
2: Bowl fifty-five at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay. Also, the stock market will be up twelve percent next year in honor of Tom Brady wearing the number twelve.
1: Ron, I hope you are as correct about the stock market being up twelve percent this year as you were. And I, I just so people know, you made that prediction before the playoffs had even started. I feel fortunate. They had a great
2: year. Tom Brady did a great job, but he also had a great team behind him. Um, let's see about that 12%
1: stock market thing. That would be something. We'll have to replay it again if that comes true. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Got a note from Matt Conrad in Los Angeles. He writes, when do you sell a stock that exceeds your expectations? I'm 33 years old. I started investing five years ago. I bought Teladoc Health and Shopify in 2019 and both have exceeded my growth expectations. I still believe in both companies, but I question their continued growth after such accelerated gains. Is there logical reasoning to take those gains and reinvest in other companies that I have the same 2019 growth in enthusiasm for?" Um, Jason, a great question about Asset allocation and uh, Matt has a good problem on his hands, which is I've got these two stocks that have gone up way more than I thought they would.
0: Yeah, Matt, when you sell, it's right about the time you click send on that email because clearly something is concerning you now and it's in the back of your mind. Um, and, and maybe you're starting to lose a little bit of sleep over, over, um, what ultimately is a nice problem to have. And and I'm only half kidding when I say when you click that email, when you send that email, because because it is a question you have. It clearly is a concern to a degree, and I think it's a fair concern. Um, it, it's something we all hope to have to, to deal with. And, and I think ultimately part of it is figuring out your risk tolerance. And that is going to be something that's different for everyone. And, and younger investors should be able to learn how to stomach a little bit more risk because you have more time in front of you. Uh, part of it, I think, really does depend on the business itself. Is the business performing? Can you understand why the stock is performing so well, or is 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 the stock price detached from the fundamentals? And and I know that's not always such an easy question to answer for sure. But it, but it really is one of those things where you start you start losing sleep at night, you start asking yourself, you start worrying about it, then it's probably, maybe it's probably time to reallocate a little bit at a time. I, I, I wouldn't jump in uh, full throttled there. I think it's okay to do it a little bit at a time and get yourself back, back down to a comfort level. But, but make sure, when you, when you have those good businesses, make sure that you keep a position in those businesses. You want to give yourself a chance to let those winners keep on winning. Let's get to the stocks
1: on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: How about Bluebird Bio, B-L-U-E? It's a biotech company. It's part of my personal biotech basket of stocks that I've spoken about before. They're engaged in researching and developing gene therapies for severe genetic disorders and cancer, strategic collaborations with Bristol-Myers, Squibb, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and many others. Now, the stock got crushed this week, falling 30%. And the company temporarily suspended all studies of their sickle cell disease gene therapy. Uh, on Tuesday. Now, what happened is a patient treated more than five years ago with their gene therapy was recently diagnosed with leukemia. So, Bluebird is investigating to see if there's any connection between the, the therapy and the leukemia. Obviously, need to know that before we move forward. So, I'm going to wait out the investigation, certainly not making any moves right now. This is still a very early stage company, nowhere near profitable yet, but a billion dollars on the balance sheet um, and have plenty of money to continue to execute. But let's see what happens with this investigation.
1: Dan, question about Bluebird
0: Bio. I don't know, Chris. This seems like kind of a disaster of a stock this week. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of curious as to, like, is Ron just like, oh, it's on stocks on a radar because it's doing really bad, and that's interesting.
2: It's uh, it's on my radar because it's one of the stocks I own as part of my basket. I own a basket because this is bound to happen to one or more of those companies, so I need to diversify across the sector. And it's now really on my radar because I need to see what
1: happens here going forward. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week?
0: Yeah, in honor of 12 years, I'm 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 going to throw a stock at here. I know I've never pitched here on Motley Fool Money. I don't think it's ever made it on Motley Fool Money before ever. uh, But a company called Radnet, ticker is. Uh, R D N T, and this is Tony Hawk's new internet company. Uh, just kidding, it's not really, but it sounds like <laughs> it is. Uh, actually, Radnet is a provider of freestanding fixed-site outpatient diagnostic imaging services, and so uh, y- you translate that. It basically it means that they are offering services like MRIs, computed tomography, uh, nuclear medicine, mammography, ultrasound, diagnostic radiology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I I actually like the positioning of imaging being so far upstream in a healthcare transaction. It's one of the earlier things you do in making a diagnosis. Uh, so, so, from that perspective, it's kind of an attractive market opportunity. And um, although it's a, a small uh, effort of the, of the business today, they are pursuing more uh, artificial intelligence solutions in order to be able to, to aid radiologists in making better diagnoses, partnering with companies like uh, Hologic, for example. and uh, grown revenue at a 10% annualized clip. So neat little business. Dan. Yeah. So I was reading about redna it seems like they have a big interest in strategic acquisitions. Uh, they've been around for 40 years, Jason, but are they, are they growing too fast or is this a company that can have some really long-term growth? I think they definitely can have some real long-term growth, given the demand for the services and the growing uh, need for for their 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 uh, imaging services. So they'll make some acquisitions, but definitely on a lot of growth opportunity.
1: What do you want to go with, Dan? Oh, this is an easy one, Chris. I'm going Radnet. Right <laughs> Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks, guys. That's going to do it for this week's show. It's produced by Matt Greer and mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.